0: This podcast is produced by Whisper and Mutter. Hi, how are you? It's Imani. I need your help. I don't know a lot about you, my listeners, aside from basic analytics, like the device you listen to this podcast on or how many downloads each episode gets. I want to understand you as a human. I am a UX researcher after all. (laughs) So, can you please take an anonymous listener survey at yizzyresearch.com? It'll be really helpful for me thank you now on to the show you're listening to the yizzy research podcast the podcast for people who research people you are listening to the voice of your host imani ux researcher at and founder of the ux research company yizzy research i help organizations understand their users and i coach aspiring and practicing ux researchers in their career journeys melissa is a hiring professional She's a talent acquisition specialist recruiting technology professionals, including UX researchers. If you've ever applied to a UX research job and wanted to chat with a recruiter to get some inside knowledge, well, here's your chance. In the first part of our conversation, Melissa talks about how she began recruiting UX researchers, the differences between a recruiter, sourcer, and hiring manager, what a recruiter looks for when looking at a UX researcher job application important soft skills for UX researchers interested in consulting, red flags on resumes, portfolios, and in interviews, and what to include in your research portfolio. Can you tell us about how you got into recruiting UX researchers? Uh,
1: I started recruiting professionally about five and a half years ago. Uh, I worked in the staffing industry initially, uh, and I worked for a small woman-run and owned agency in the suburbs of Chicago. Uh, And fast forward to October 2019, I found myself interviewing here at Kinecarta, and spoiler alert, I got the job, Um, (laughs) but I began learning uh, about a number of technical roles while I worked here, um, or my time here, Um, and due to the nature of our business, um, I got uh, to learn quite a bit, um, and the rest is history. Um, I've worked on both UXR and UXD roles many times throughout my career here at Kinecarta.
0: And there's a difference between a recruiter, a sourcer, and a hiring manager. Can you explain to us what's the difference? Because if you're interviewing, especially as a UX researcher, I know personally, I've spoken to all three. And I know the difference between a recruiter and a hiring manager, but I'm not sure what a sourcer does. So can you explain to us what the difference is between those three?
1: I am a talent acquisition specialist, which is like the synonymous name with recruiter. So you'll hear that people call them either. Um, but I'd be happy to, to kind of explain this. So um, it can differ quite a bit from company to company, but for Kin and Carta, it goes like this. So a sourcer is someone who proactively sources talent uh, to help them bring an additional pipeline, or additional people into our pipeline of candidates. Um, they generally only interact with candidates via LinkedIn messages, emails, or other digital communication methods, and that's where their part of the process would end. Um, A hiring manager is a person who is generally a senior member of the team or practice or department that is hiring for the role at hand. Um, They're generally involved in the interview process and or oversees the interview process alongside the recruiter, but they are a member of the team that we are hiring for generally. Um, And then a recruiter or talent acquisition specialist is someone who is the first point of contact and the face of the company for the candidate throughout their process. And ultimately, they own the candidate's experience and process from application review through the offer stage. Uh, We also have one other role here at Ken and Carter that I do want to call out to. Those would be our talent acquisition coordinators. And they take on the incredible task of scheduling all of our interviews and supporting our team in many other important
0: ways. And it sounds like from what you said, so a sourcer is someone who finds people on websites like LinkedIn. So I imagine a sourcer is relatively new in the HR space, right?
1: Yeah. So LinkedIn is one of the great resources that they use, but there's, I mean, in this day and age, there's a plethora, um, but generally their role is to proactively bring more candidates into our, our pipeline.
0: And when hiring UX researchers, from your perspective, what hard skills are you looking for?
1: It's a little bit of background. We I do want to set the standard from the beginning that the way that we hire is almost definitely going to differ from other companies and industries. Um, So I'm going to try to answer these as generally as possible, but just know that I speak specifically from our scope of consulting, so we do have some pretty unique needs uh, for our researchers. Um, But a few things that we consistently look for are, you know, is the resume clean and easy to read or professional looking? Um, Does this person have the years of experience in research-centered roles that we're looking for? Do they seem to have a good track record of growth or professional development Um, if not is there a cover letter that tells me their story which we'll talk more about probably later (laughs) Um, but i also really enjoy it when there is a list of research tools or skills on their resume Um, we do work with a number of different companies and industries so having a few specific skills isn't nearly as important as a proven ability to flex into many different styles of research um, as that more closely reflects the needs of our research team. Consulting skills are also extremely important um, as evangelizing UXR is something that our team members must be prepared to do from time to time on client projects. Um, I'd also like to add that skills pertaining to either working in cross-functional teams or within the agile methodology, methodology in general, um, or both, can also be a big
0: plus. One thing you look for from your perspective as a professional is how many years of experience the applicant has relative to what the job, in this case, the company can and Carter what you're looking for, right? How hard is that requirement? Usually, I know, like, I've applied for roles where I had less experience, and I still made it pretty far in the process. So just from your perspective, how, how set in stone is that requirement for having X amount of years of experience? Like, if someone has four years of experience, or two years of experience, and they see a role that requires five, should they just not even bother? What are your thoughts on that?
1: always, always, always shoot high. (laughs) Um, Honestly, it's never going to hurt anything, right? I mean, to your point, uh, a hiring manager might start off saying, yeah, we we really do need a firm five years of experience for this position. So that might be what ends up going on the job description, seeing as job job descriptions are generally um, put together or written Prior to an interview process beginning. Um, But then as we start to go through resumes, there might be some people who have three or four years that look especially promising, who on the first call perform exceptionally well. um, And now the team is meeting with somebody who's beneath that requirement um, because they brought so many other things to the table um, that maybe we didn't think we could get, or that frankly just were really stand out compared to their peers. So It never hurts to put through an application. And frankly, in this day and age, we make it so easy for people to apply. Um, So my advice there is just apply for anything that sounds interesting. Um, You know, if it says a senior position with five to 10 years of experience and you're a junior candidate, maybe not those. But again, I I don't want to hinder or really like discourage anyone from putting through an application again at the end of the day the worst thing that's going to happen is you're going to get that rejection email right which never feels great Um, but the best thing that could happen is you could definitely surprise uh, the team and um, they might be open to something that maybe they didn't think that they were
0: and you mentioned the job description you said the job job description is created way, way before an interview right so who creates the job descriptions
1: Um, And that's another thing that's going to differ from company to company, but I can speak on behalf of our process. Um, We do try to follow a format um, just to make sure that we're representing the company the same way and that we have some kind of understanding of why we're asking for the things that we're asking for. But generally, our team here and the talent team, um, we we partner with our hiring managers to put together the best possible job description um, that's not only broad enough to encourage different groups of people to apply, um, but also specific enough Um, to really help us find what we're looking for.
0: And when hiring for UX researcher roles, right, obviously you're looking for people who have UX research in their background, right? But do you consider people who may have research, UX research adjacent backgrounds? So for example, someone who has a PhD, so their background is in academic research or someone who's a market researcher? Uh, We actually have
1: hired people from academic research backgrounds. I think that's probably the closest parallel that exists outside of technology. um, when we're talking about research skills, um, you know, a few of the things that we really look for, like I mentioned before, um, is really being able to work really well in these cross-functional teams. So the teamwork aspect is definitely something that plays into it. Um, but you know, we are not averse to hiring from, um, different areas that aren't necessarily technology however i would tell you that to be considered for more of our our mid-level or higher level positions we generally do like to see a little bit more experience within this specific field just because that's when we start talking about you know consulting and all the things that i mentioned before Um, so it really depends on what type of role and frankly which um what what level we're looking to fill for Um, but I, i wouldn't say it's off the table by any means
0: And then we talked previously about the hard skills you look for for UX research applicants. What about the soft skills, right? Like what soft skills are you looking for, one? And two, when you're talking to someone, especially virtually, how do you know, okay, John Doe or Jane Doe has soft skill X, right? It's kind of hard to fill that out. So what soft skills do you look for in UX researchers? And how do you know if they have it or not?
1: Our pipeline is constantly changing, (laughs) We may have a specific role in mind but the individuals who are most successful in consulting are those who could work in a variety of scenarios with that said we are looking for comfort and ambiguity those are a big one Um, a combo of both humility and genuine passion for continued learning flexibility and adaptability is huge and then of course UXR skills (laughs) Um, but our organization changes and grows so constantly so for a person who thrives in the aforementioned areas we have so much to offer them. We do try to look for a few key things related to how they speak about choosing methodologies, nuance and sample size assessment, and realistic participant recruiting plans. Um, but as a research, the candidate should also have questions about the role, our work, the company, et cetera, um, to show a, a natural curiosity and interest in what we do as a B Corp, B Corp certified business. Um, so on a resume, you know it's hard to tell those things, I'll be honest, um, but Generally, from a resume standpoint, we start off with the hard skills and start to screen out the softer skills as we get into the process. It's a bit more personal. Um, there are some recruiters that can make an argument that those are things that you can judge from a resume, but I am a very people-centered talent recruiter, or I'm just a very people-centered recruiter. Um, and for me, I like to keep those screening efforts for more the personal side of the interview.
0: So it sounds like the first step for people is the resume and the cover letter, which is where you show your hard skills. And that sounds like that's where people should focus on their hard skills. And then once they make it beyond that, the next step or the next level is now that you have a conversation with a hiring professional, now you can show a lot more of those softer skills.
1: Correct, yeah, I couldn't have said it any better. Make sure to nail down your hard skills as best you can on your resume to win that first call. And on that first call, that's when your personalities should absolutely shine.
0: And it's also important, too, for researchers, since our job is to talk to people all the time. (laughs) You should know your conversational (laughs) skills during the interview reveal a lot about how you would be as a researcher. So that's fair. And for UX researchers, what are some huge flags on a resume or during the interview or on a portfolio?
1: I would say that the biggest red flag for me on a resume is not including dates anywhere on the resume. I don't have a lot of them. Let me preface this. <laughs> I really do try to take a very holistic approach to reviewing a resume and understanding that this isn't just a resume, these aren't just dates, these aren't just positions. This is a person, this is their story, right? Um, so I frankly might put through more candidates to the recruiter to the recruiter screen stage than maybe other recruiters do for that reason. But you know, the antiquated idea of stability is not the main concern when we're talking about dates on a resume. But if the dates are intentionally left off, we have no way of understanding exactly what your experience is. Therefore, most recruiters will not move forward. Also, not including the tools or types of research methodologies that you use can also be problematic, especially when we're talking about research, Um, and it can also make you seem more junior than you really are Um, for the interview. I would say the biggest red flags for us would be someone looking for a lot of structure or predictability in their next role. As I mentioned earlier, consulting is an unpredictable practice at times and we don't wanna put someone in a situation where they might be unhappy or unsuccessful in their role. Um, When we talk about portfolios, um, they can be tough to nail down for UXR. So for me, the biggest red flag is a lack of detail around case studies. These case studies really help us understand both your role in the process as well as your successes on the team. And if we can't interpret that, it does leave us without an understanding of who you are as a researcher.
0: And when you say that the case studies aren't fleshed out and you identify that as a red flag, so what do you mean by that? Is it, again, like similar to the resume where they don't include like which methods they use or they don't talk about like the methodology? Like what is like what makes a case study like thin, so to speak? Yeah, I would just say vagueness.
1: So, not going into details about specific parts of the process, specific user stories, or specific uh, contributions to that team or to that project. It's really great. I, the rule of thumb I always go for with resumes and portfolios is make it as easy for someone reading, make it as easy for someone reading it who doesn't know anything about what you do, to. Interpret or understand what it is that you did, right? Make it as as easy and understandable for those outside of the project to understand what happened inside of the project and exactly what pieces of it that you owned. Um, and so, when we go in very vague, it can do one or two things. It either one um, can overinflate your responsibility within the position. It can underestimate your your um. It can us. It can underestimate your position within the team or the ownership you took, um, or it can make you seem um, just much more junior than what you actually are. Um, it, it frankly just leaves a lot of gray area for the recruiters, um, and for the hiring managers and doesn't allow us to really get a big picture of exactly what your skills and your contributions can be for our team.
0: Yeah. And also another point to that is basically also to avoid making your application too jargon heavy, right? For a lot of people, especially a lot of researchers I talk to and myself also, sometimes our portfolios can be so wordy and industry specific, right? And it's like, well, people, this is like a foreign language to someone else, right? So sometimes it can be hard. It can be challenging for people to simplify the language because they assume that other people just know what they're talking about, Or they don't want to patronize other people but it sounds like you're saying make it plain make it simple make it sharp (laughs) yeah
1: exactly but that's a really great point from a recruiting standpoint depending on the company depending on the size of the company frankly depending on the size of the recruiting team in general um it really depends on who's going to be looking at that portfolio or your resume and it's safe to assume the person looking at that portfolio is not a researcher. Some cases it will be. Again, I don't want to assume what other companies do, but in most cases or most companies that have formal talent teams, um, it's not a researcher who's looking at it. Eventually a researcher will want to look at it. And of course you certainly want to include the important things that they're going to be looking for, but it's also super helpful for a talent team to be able to look at something and have a really strong understanding of it, even if they're not a researcher themselves. So it's definitely a fine line of walking between having it look professional, and look in a certain way that a researcher would want it to look like, um, but also have enough dialogue and and backup information to really help someone who may not have the full scope of understanding be able to at least get a a general understanding of what your roles and responsibilities were for that specific project or what your main
0: contributions may have been. If you're enjoying this podcast, go to Apple Podcasts and give it a five-star rating and a glowing review. Subscribe, follow, Many of you messaged me to tell me how much you like the podcast, but it's even better if you share it with your coworkers, mentees, and mentors on LinkedIn, Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, TikTok, and any other platform I forgot to mention. Spread the love. Don't keep me to yourself. <laughs> Also, if you are an aspiring or even a current UX researcher who needs help with your resume, interviewing skills, professional branding, cover letter, LinkedIn profile, and portfolio, consider applying for the Yizzy Research Coaching Program. In the rest of this episode, Melissa talks about the best use case for a cover letter, what she expects to see in a cover letter, hiring UX researchers as contractors how to navigate discussing salary expectations during the interview, a recruiter's point of view on why there aren't a lot of junior UX researcher roles, and lastly, thinking about culture addition as opposed to culture fit. It sounds like, and you use the word story a lot when you were talking about people's cover letters and their resume, right? But in a way it is. It's like your professional story that you're telling about yourself. Like you are the author of your story. What type of story do you want to tell? What do you want people to know about you? What impression do you want to leave? What skills do you have? So I like that, that analogy of like you being an author and these materials are your story. I, I consider both job seeking
1: and recruitment really a job of storytelling. It, it really is at the end of the day. Um, I've talked to, I have a, a very big group of peers within the talent network. Um, And it's funny, we all agree that, you know, talent acquisition in a lot of ways is just really persuasive storytelling. And, you know, my candidate is telling a story about themselves, we're telling a story about our company and, you know, what we're looking for. Um, And ultimately, it's just a matter of those two stories intertwining in a way that makes perfect sense. And when it does, that's when we really have an amazing hire and an amazing opportunity for an employee
0: what if someone has a few gaps in their resume? So you mentioned like a huge red flag is if people don't include dates, which is that does not happen often, but it, it happens sometimes, right? Like what about people who may have, especially since we had the pandemic recently, people were out of work, or if you have people that are applying for more junior level roles, they may have had a hard time getting internships or getting UX work. Like what do you think about people who have those gaps in their resume?
1: Yeah, it's a a big hot topic in the recruiting world (laughs) Um, about the concept of longevity or stability or job gaps, et cetera. Um, but I will tell you, and I'm confident enough in my field and in my, my colleagues and my peers to know that we're we're working our way out of that antiquated mentality of having these job gaps, quote unquote, be this huge red flag or this, this big determining factor on if we move forward with candidates. Um, the interview process is becoming much more people-friendly, people-centric, um, and a lot less you know analytical, if you will. Um, and because of that... I see many recruiters not focusing nearly as heavily on those things anymore, or, um, you know, going back to the concept of co- cover letter that I mentioned earlier, that's really when I look for a cover letter to really help explain some of those things. Now, if there's a, a couple month gap or six month gap, like I, I I don't care. <laughs> Frankly, I don't care. Um, you know, you don't have to go into explanations about, you know I was laid off and couldn't find a job for six months. Of course, that's mo- what most recruiters are going to assume is what happened when we see uh, some kind of gap on a resume, especially when we're talking about this last year. I would say it's safe to assume that no recruiter is going to second guess any sort of gap. We all have been there. We've all been through it. We all know what this last year has looked like. But let's say, just as an example, There's a year gap back in 2018 on your resume. Um, You know, you were in a research position for six months and then there's a year gap. And then, you know, you've been working for the last two years. Uh, Again, from a a recruiting standpoint, is that going to be a determining factor for me? Probably not. But if you do have something like that, that would maybe um, make someone just curious uh, about your background or curious to know what was keeping you busy during that time, that's a wonderful opportunity for a cover letter to be used in a very strategic way um, to kind of tell your story, explain who you are, what your backgrounds looked like, you know, what that um, process or the, what that path has looked like for you. And if there was something keeping you out of the market for an extended period of time that you think someone might have questions about um, or maybe see as a concern, then explain it. Um, Take that opportunity to do it there. Um, For me personally, whenever I see anything on a resume um, that I would have questions about, that's always the first place I check is to see, okay, did they attach a cover letter? Let's hop in here. Let's see if there's any context around this.
0: My next question was, do you read cover letters with the answers? Obviously, yes. And so it sounds like for you, like the cover letter is the place where people get to explain themselves before you actually have a conversation, right?
1: So when we're looking at cover letters, again, this is another big hot topic. And I think many people would answer it very differently. But for me, um, I would say a cover letter never hurts. I don't feel like it's something that's necessary in every situation, but no one's ever going to not move forward with you because you did not attach a a resume or excuse me, a cover letter. You're gonna hear me say that a lot, is that it never hurts, it never hurts. It's better to go over than under, right? Um, And that's always my philosophy around job searching in general. Um, It's always better to go above and beyond than to be missing something that someone, one particular person might be looking for, right? So just because I don't particularly read cover letters every single time they're attached, especially in a situation of someone has a resume that tells a very clear story, and I really don't have any questions at the end of it, at least, you know, from understanding their background standpoint, I'm probably not going to hop in and read that. I'm not going to hop in and read that because I don't have any immediate questions, right? Um, but in a situation where there is something that um, makes me have a question, for example, a career change, a significant gap in employment, like we just talked about, taking a step back in your career, etc., my first step is to always read through the cover letter.
0: And in terms of hiring people, right, especially with UX researchers. When do you decide to hire someone as a W-2 employee, whether they're a full-time traditional employee or they're a contractor, as opposed to hiring someone on a 1099 basis? Like, how do you decide what how this role should be classified? So we don't
1: typically hire 1099s for research as an organization. Um, we either generally hire through an agency, which would be like a complete outside hire, or W-2. And that would be either full-time or contract. So I can't provide a lot of context around 1099 employees. However, I can explain a little bit more about why we hire contractors. Um, Being in consulting, the main reason we hire often is when we have a project or projects that we can't fill with our existing bench or teams. We would hire contractors in a lot of cases where we may have a need for a six-month project, but can't guarantee that there would be work after that project um, has come to an end. We'd always rather put employees in a situation where we can bring them on full time or extend their contract unexpectedly versus the alternative.
0: Yeah, that makes sense. So during the interview, how should aspiring UX researchers looking for a UX role, how should they discuss their salary expectations? I know that's a tricky, it's really awkward for people to talk about. (laughs) So from your perspective, how should people approach that? Yeah, definitely another hot
1: topic. (laughs) You're hitting a lot of them. Um, My best advice is is just to be honest. Don't try to do a lot of digging via Glassdoor or other websites. Most of that data is not accurate, and you may end up either disqualifying yourself unnecessarily because you found bad or incomplete information. Um, Recruiters are not gatekeepers, believe it or not. <laughs> and in most cases, if what you're looking for is different than what we're paying, I'm going to tell you. Um, we honestly just want to know what your needs are. Think of us more of like matchmakers. <laughs> I like to use the the two number rule. Um, I have my candidates provide me with their need number and their smile number, which is the number that would make them smile. Um, and hopefully those two coincide. But that formal helps us build a bigger picture.
0: Yeah, I think it's interesting that you mentioned being hesitant about applicants using websites like Glassdoor, those pay, uh, PESA, Indeed, where they have the salary information because it may not be accurate, right? So considering that, right. like, how should people, especially for people that are more junior, right? I imagine if you're more senior, you have employment history, so you can base your salary based on what you've received in the past, right? For people that are a lot younger, let's say someone one or two years out of college, right? How do you figure out how much you you how do you figure out your number
1: so there's there's really two approaches to this and it honestly depends on your personal situation so there's some parts of it i can't give advice on and some things are completely personal and i want to be respectful of that um but if you are lucky enough to be someone who can really take an opportunity to get an opportunity um then be honest about that again i'm going to go back to that probably with everything i say just be honest say you know right now my biggest priority is finding an opportunity that helps me grow and helps me develop. Um, And so salary is not my number one concern right now. You know, I did a lot of research about your company, you know, in Ken and Carter's case, you know, you're a B Corp certified business, which I know means that you take care of your employees. Um, I, I promise where you guys are at, I'm sure is within a fair market range. And for me right now, the biggest priority is just getting that opportunity. That's always a perfect way to answer the question if that's honestly the situation you are in um, and you can make work, right? Um, the, other, the other half of it is if you are somebody who does have a specific need. So let's say you are someone who's going through a career change, right? Um, and you do have a number in mind, but you also don't want to underestimate your your worth, right? And you just may not have the, the knowledge uh, or you know understanding of what that market value might be. Again, do your research about your companies and make sure you're working or applying for a company that, you know, is known for having fair salaries. That's always information that you can find just depending on their different initiatives. And um, that's one case where I say you can use Glassdoor um, just as a, a resource, obviously not to give you an exact number, but just on the experience of other employees. Um, but again, be be honest in those situations. Say, look, you know, I realistically, and this goes back to my, my two number rule, <laughs> realistically, I need this to be able to survive, or I need this number, um, as my bare minimum. Um, but I don't want to roll myself out and just being honest, you know, this other number would make me very, very happy. I don't know if that's in or out of your range. You tell me. Um, and so by giving those two numbers, what you're doing is you're still hitting the head on the nail. You're still providing a number, which is extremely helpful for the recruiter, but you're also building yourself in some cushion, if you will, to not eliminate yourself from consideration, um, but also having the company or the recruiter understand, look, I really can't do under this number, but you know, I have done some research, or you know, I, I I'm aware that this is a possibility for some companies. And if we could be closer to this second number, this would make me genuinely happy.
0: I like the fact that you said that you're not that the hiring professionals, you all are not gatekeepers. That's
1: genuinely not our intention um it really isn't it it, sometimes we have approved budgets you know and a lot of times a candidate will ask us you know in return well you know what are you guys looking to pay for this position And in some cases, we genuinely can tell you. Um, In other cases, we have so many different openings that frankly, just depending on your experience level and what we find later in the process to be your technical aptitude, we can consider you for. Um, And in those cases, it's harder to give an exact number. So it's, it's always a good idea to provide some number to a recruiter um, I know a lot of people go that other route because they feel like, again, the recruiter is this you know big bad scary like troll gatekeeper keeping people out from the company and looking for any reason to not move forward with you. But I can tell you with 100 percent certainty, 99.9 percent of the time that is not the case. So again, following that two number rule is the best advice that I can give. Um, unless you have a very specific range that you know you want to stay within, that's fine too. But especially if you're someone who's Either newer to the market or someone who's a little unsure about what they could be making or what that fair market value for that role would be, it's always a safe bet. Again, it gives you a nice foundational base where you know that you couldn't accept any lower than this, but also saying, you know, but, you know, I'm realistically telling companies I'd really, really like to be here and this is what would make me happy make me feel appreciated, and frankly, make me feel invested.
0: Yeah, that's great advice. I, I actually was talking to someone a few years ago when I was fresh out of college, and they told me, like they were like, look, Imani, if someone is contacting you for an interview, they have a degree of interest in you. So you already have a little leverage, right? So you might as well just go for it. So they, you have something that they're interested in. So I think that's a good perspective to keep, too. And speaking of that, so we had talked about this um offline so a lot of companies don't really hire junior level u x researchers, right at least not as much as they do people at the more senior levels. So what's going on with that from a recruiter's perspective?
1: Oh man <laughs> this is a challenging situation that we're in right now. um I would say a lot of this is very i would say a lot of this is is very unique to the last twelve to fourteen months um and I can speak. You know, a little bit on that. I mean, the reality is no one has the exact answer, but I have my suspicions and insights from watching how companies have been responding to the effects of COVID. Um, You know, one year ago when the companies, when companies' budgets were paused and many projects were halted, it really shut down the hiring market almost completely. And fast forward to winter or spring of 2021 and suddenly businesses are beginning to recover and suddenly everyone is looking to take on projects that realistically had due due dates in either spring or summer of 2020. So where companies used to have more time to ramp up and have a little bit more predictability in regards to their projects' timelines and start dates, which allowed for time for training and getting more junior employees up to speed... Today, we're lacking that luxury in most cases, and the need is for those who can jump in immediately. Um, It it will slow down in a good way, and the world will catch up, and when they do, my prediction is that we're going to see a boom in needs for junior candidates across the board, either in junior roles, internships, apprenticeships, et cetera.
0: So basically, like, there's no time to train more junior researchers because you have these projects that had deadlines from like literally last year, <laughs> you need people who already have confidence in their skills and already have X years of experience. That makes a lot of sense. I think people will like to hear that. <laughs> and, you know, I, I'm, I'm well aware that I'm probably just scraping the surface of like the
1: business impacts of COVID. And I'm sure it it's like an iceberg where there's so much more underneath it that I can even begin to talk about. But just from my experience and what I've seen from, you know, my scope of being a recruiter. um, I can see that being absolutely one of the reasons that we see um, a little bit less junior hiring these days. Um, And I I don't expect that to be something that's exclusive to our industry or our business. Um, Again, I've talked to a few of my peers who are working in the talent departments of many other companies and many other industries, um, and they're seeing a lot of the same impact. Um, but again, I, I have every faith in the world that this is a temporary problem, um, and we're probably going to see just a absolutely massive rush and need for these junior candidates, um, hopefully sooner rather than later.
0: And regardless of a UX researcher's seniority level, let's say you make it to the um, the interview stage, right? What are some good questions that researchers should be asking you as a recruiter? So I hate to call them good or bad questions. <laughs> I feel like a teacher. There are no bad questions, (laughs) right?
1: Um, But I would say as a researcher, intentional questions are something that is just part of the field, right? Being able to be curious enough to ask questions is the important part. And I think asking questions is not something that is a good rule of thumb for just researchers. Researchers, honestly, it's good for for any employee um, or any potential employee or any candidate. Um, But questions regarding our impact as a business, I'll be honest, it, that's always a, a <laughs> it's always going to win us over. We are a company that is very much so rooted in our mission um, and our core purpose and just ultimately making positive impacts on the world. So any questions that a candidate's going to have about any of that or any of our social <laughs> impact or or efforts that we have, um, those are always incredible impressions to be made. Um, but really just, just anything, you know, I think some of the good questions are even something as simple as like, what is your favorite part about working for the organization? I think as hiring managers and interviewers and recruiters, we spend so much time talking about other people, talking about the business, the team, right? But we don't often get the opportunity to really talk about these personal things, Um You know, talking about why we love the company, talking about our personal growth and experiences within the organization. So, being able to flip that a little bit (laughs) is never a bad thing. Um, And frankly, it just is another opportunity for. interviewer to build a little bit more of a personal connection with the candidate, which is always uh, an ideal situation for for everyone, um, is really being able to knock down those professional walls a little bit and get a little bit of personal in there as well. Um, And it's a great way to do that. But showing that you're not only interested in the company, but the position and the team, um, and really asking questions that really show that you are interested and invested long-term in your personal growth, your professional growth within the organization, those are all really great areas to pull questions from.
0: And just flipping this. So from your perspective, what is the biggest challenge you have as a recruiter when trying to recruit uh, UX researchers? Like what is your your pain point, so to speak? Or what are some of your challenges or even some of your pet peeves when trying to, to find us? <laughs> um, you know, I, I wouldn't say there's many challenges
1: um, and I wouldn't want to give out like a ton of like you should or shouldn't do this, because, again, I think the interview process is so personal and my encouragement is always just to be yourself. And I know it sounds so cliche. (laughs) Um, the, the mom in me is coming out, but, (laughs) um, it's really true. I mean, at the end of the day, it's either going to be a good fit or it's not. And being yourself is, is always the best thing you can do. I mean, it, to put on some kind of facade or to act in a quote unquote perfect way during the interview. um, But then getting into that company's culture um, and suddenly realizing that you have to be that person, not really who you are. Is that really a situation you want to be in? Probably not. Um, You'd rather go through a process as hundred percent yourself. Right. Um, And then be able to show up to work every day as yourself. Um, I think that's such a a cleaner and more personally respectful process. And I think it's something that's going to make, many people much more happy and fulfilled in their role. Um, But as a mission-driven business, it's so important to us to bring people on board who share in our purpose of making the world work better and giving back with everything that we do. Um, Being a B Corp certified business means that we redefine success and aim to be a force for good. And we can't do that without people on our team who share in that vision. Um, We really look for people who are humble, hungry, and smart, um, and people who want to use technology for good. Um, and that's something that, you know, we're always looking for and sometimes can can be harder to find than <laughs> even those, you know, really specific skill sets. But at the end of the day, that's why our interview process is so personal and why personally as a recruiter, I try to make it so story driven and so um, personal and very empathetic uh, as a process so that we can make sure that it's not only a fit skill wise, it's not only a fit experience wise, but. You as a person, and us as a company with a vision, we align, and we can help build something um, and build a company that's that's uh, going to do wonderful things for the world.
0: Yeah, like that culture fit is what a lot of companies call it, right? Like the making sure that you actually fit in with the culture of the company because it can be tough. Because when people interview for jobs. They're probably a little bit nervous, right? And they may, they may not be themselves when they're nervous. So um, yeah, I think it's like a balancing act too, just trying to calm yourself down enough so that you can actually act like yourself <laughs> in an interview. Here's something
1: that I think is a small change in the way that people think about culture fit and interviewing that I think helps bring down those nerves a lot, um, or I hope does. Um, stop thinking about it as, am I a culture fit for this business? Am I a culture fit for this company? And start thinking about it from the perspective of, am I a culture addition? Do I add something to this culture? Um, That's the way that me as a recruiter, I choose to look at every candidate that I speak with. I never write in a note card. I never (laughs) say to someone, I think you'd be a really strong culture fit. Um, I'm sure many people who have talked to me might be listening to this and probably know I always refer to it as a culture ad or culture addition. Um, we are not a place and certainly we don't foster a culture here at and Carta of one where we try to find people who fit, right? That, that's so boring. It's like the concept of having like copy and paste people, right? And how boring the world would be if we could control how everyone looked and everyone thought um, versus the idea of true diversity, um, which is bringing people from all different places in life, all different places in the world, frankly, um, and people from different experiences, um, different backgrounds, um, different identities, and making them work together in this really mutual respectful um, type of way um, but also a culture that really inhibits, or not inhibits, but a culture that genuinely wants and it helps people grow um, and create an environment that fosters these independent personalities um, and puts them, de- puts them together in a way
0: um, that really works. Thanks for listening. Don't forget to take the listener survey on com. Give this podcast a five-star review on Apple Podcasts. And follow Yuzi Research on Twitter and LinkedIn. We'll chat soon.